0: back to the non-standard 14er podcast the podcast that talks about everything the route description leaves out about hiking colorado's 14ers we're doing another zoom podcast i'm short rope and i got right next to me jacer jack howdy hey jack hello hello and i'll let jacer jack introduce our guest for the podcast today our
1: guest today is seth linden you might know seth from his popular facebook group seth's weather report or you might have run into him skiing one of the 14ers or local backcountry zones. He works for the National Center for Atmospheric Research and puts out, in my opinion, some of the best and most accurate weather forecasts that we've been using as a non-standard 14er crew to build our plans in the mountains for the last few years now. Uh, my family personally uses his weather reports for our snow removal business, and he nails his forecasts every time. Uh, we Chris and I ran into Seth in April on the summit of Mount Democrat right before we all made our ski descents. Seth is just a great advocate for the Colorado outdoors. He's a wealth of knowledge and we are super excited to have him on the podcast. So thank you, Seth.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the introduction. It's great.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And thanks for your, uh, your, um, awesome weather reporting. That's how we stumbled upon our introduction with you. And I think I've told you on the, um, on the weather page, but we use it for 14 years all the time. But, uh, my dad and I also have a snow removal business in Evergreen, and we have used that for three years now, your weather report for, you seem to nail it every time, every storm forever. <laughs> Thank you for that, too. I appreciate that.
2: That's very kind words, Jace. Um, you know, I try, I've been forecasting weather a long time. I, I would disagree that I nail it every time, but Close I appreciate to that. Else. I definitely try my best. It's a passion to get the weather.
1: Awesome. <laughs> so quite the boring month we've got ahead of us for weather, though, huh?
2: Yeah, and, and, and obviously, you know, feel free to ask anything. Let's talk about weather 14 or skiing. That's, you know, my passions for sure. Um, but yeah, we can start there. Um, you know, we, we obviously had this freak early season snowstorm in September, which was pretty unprecedented. It was actually the earliest snowfall, I think, for Boulder, Fort Collins, one of the earliest for Denver, I think officially the second earliest, but basically the earliest. And then for Southern Colorado, I grew up in Alamosa. I'm in Southern Colorado, you know, grew up skiing Wolf Creek. They got literally one of the biggest snowstorms they've ever had. And it was one of the earliest snowstorms, which was just unprecedented. They got 14.5 inches on September 8th to 9th, which is, <laughs> wow. al- Alamosa averages 30 inches of snow a year. So for them, that's just- They're already incredible. halfway there. Yeah. That's
1: crazy. Wow. Then, and, and then from that, just back to back into our 90, record number of 90 degree days, now we're back into the heat wave.
2: Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit uh, to that, you know. um, So, you know, basically, um, that was a pretty freak weather event. It was kind of like a piece of the polar vortex breaking off uh, due to a strong upper level low, um, sort of pattern related. Certainly, you know, there's some climate change underneath that in terms of, ironically, when we had that, it was really warm in Alaska, right? And so there was a big ridge of high pressure up north. It pushed a big area of cold air down south. Um, and, and under climate change, you, you tend to see a lot more of these big variability dynamic patterns where you can actually have like these freak cold events. And so, you know, that happened. It was, it was related to the weather pattern that moved through. Now it looks like a much more standard fall. And it does look like, you know, La Nina-esque in, in terms of the pattern right now. So we're back to, you know, we normally Colorado, the Front Range, uh, Denver, Boulder, um, and the mountains. We do typically get a fairly dry and quiet period in most of September into parts of October. And that's because the jet stream is setting up further north. It slowly strengthens as we get towards November, and it comes down, right, and sets up over the U.S. during the the winter. So we're right now we're in that in-between phase. We're in in the fall, kind of typical. It does look, you know, it's warmer than average. And then you look at the pattern going forward into next week and the week beyond, it looks kind of La Nina-esque in the sense that the jet stream's up north. Big shot of cold air is going to come down into the upper Midwest and basically east of Colorado. That does very little for Colorado, almost nothing for the mountains. The front range will get a cold front on Sunday and then another one on like Wednesday. It'll cool things down some, it'll feel a bit like fall, but not much precept. I don't think we'll see much. I mean, maybe a few rain showers here and there, and, but that's about it. So, so a good yeah, time to be on the high peaks extended.
0: Good time to be on Snowmass yeah. Sunday.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've already had people, you know, with the weather blog, it's been great. I mean, you know, I appreciate that. Um, it's been such a passion and, and, and It's grown so much. And even even just recently, I had somebody asking me, literally, um, one of the big climbers asking me, where should I climb on Sunday? Should it be in Southern Colorado or Northern Colorado? That's cool. And my thing was like, hey, look, there is a cold front that's actually going to push into the Northern half of the state with wind and some colder air and some clouds, not much precip over, you know, like the Northern Sawatch, Central Mountains, even probably impacting snowmass a bit, but that's sort of the dividing line. The Elk, the Elk Mountain, excuse me, could usually stop the flow. So Southern Colorado is going to probably be out of the cold front entirely. But again, and we're talking about a little bit of wind and cold and nothing major at all.
1: We as skiers are familiar with the El Nino, La Nina, but for our listeners that might not know what a La Nina means, can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we talk about La Nina and El Nino. These are the different ENSO phases. And really what it has to do with is – the water temperature in a very specific region of the Pacific. They call it this region, it's it's the El Nino 3.4 region. There's these different regions. Basically, it's along the the equator in the Pacific, basically west of South America. So, you know, a little further out into the ocean. And when you have warm water that's upwelling or the, the, the area near the surface water is warm, that's El Nino type conditions. And the easiest way to think about that is that puts more energy in the southern branch of the jet stream. So when the southern branch gets going, you'll have more moisture and energy coming into California, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah. Um, and so, and then you'll have the lows tracking across southern Colorado, so you typically get more snow on the front range, per se, and you know, in southern Colorado as well. La is the opposite of that. So that same region, now you're talking about colder than average water, so an upwelling of cold water in that region, and so it's, it's trending colder. That pushes the jet stream further north as far as the United States is concerned. So you typically have more energy with the jet stream and moisture further north from, let's say, you know areas like the Pacific Northwest. And then again, from the Midwest East, is typically colder. We're usually right on the dividing line. And, and the one thing I'd say for Colorado and Utah and, and, and those kind of states, we're kind of in between. The signals are sometimes a little bit mixed, but generally speaking, La Nina puts more of the focus on northern Colorado, less in southern Colorado, and we typically get less on the front range. It's the opposite for El Nino. With the southern storm track, you get big snowfall in southern Colorado and usually more snowfall in the front range, typically a little bit less in northern Colorado. So those are the general themes, but it can vary widely for Colorado.
1: And does it alternate, or do we have years that are just neither, and it just is what it is, average? No Nino. No Nino. Yeah.
2: yeah it it varies it, so first of all there is a, a there there is sort of a wave pattern to it it does alternate to some degree but it varies considerably um you can definitely go you know have several neutral years in a row we actually had i think well so last year was neutral you know we had a ton of snow on the front range it was fairly average for the mountains not so good for southern colorado but it, it, these kind of things are basically in like 3 to 5 year cycles so you know, you can go from strong El Ninos to strong La Ninas in like three years, two to three years. Sometimes back to back years as it's fading out, the temperatures change slowly. So, yeah, we have an entire mix. You know, I've kept track of snowfall at my house. I'm a total weather geek <laughs> for like 15 years straight. And I mark down what the phases are just to see if I can gain the pattern.
3: That's so neat. And I remember that's the comment that the person made. There was a person who recently commented about someone's patio furniture snow shot. And they were like, man, I'm so sick of seeing all the patio furniture snow shots. And you were so nice about the response on your blog. You're like, you know, I love seeing backyard photos. It's like a real experience. And like those people really enjoy. You know, looking at their at their stuff, yeah, and was super graceful. It, was it was super awesome. graceful. Yeah. And I'm like, good for Seth not being like, go away, you know, because <laughs> that guy was kind of being a jerk.
2: Yeah, I try to. I mean, it's weather. Look, I mean, let's be real. There's so much like other strife <laughs> and so much yeah, back right. and forth politics. I don't want to do that on my weather blog, and I generally don't want to get too sort of, um, you know, I don't want to get into hard debates with people. I will. I mean, I've had some crazy comments. Weather forecasting is hard. But, yeah, the one thing I told that guy I was like, "In my book, "Any picture of snow is a good picture.. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. yes. Amen. <laughs> right. I mean, you guys can relate. I mean, the one thing and we can get into this, the reason I got into the weather was from skiing powder, and that's still the case for it. That's why I forecast the weather ultimately. I want to just go ski the deepest pow all the time whenever I can so. That, that's why I forecast ultimately.
1: You answered my next question. That's awesome. So, how did you get into it? You're, you're a young guy that's passionate about powder and you decided to go into this field, or did it kind of naturally happen?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Let me give you a little background there. So, you know, I was born and raised in Alamosa, Colorado, a small town, Southern Colorado. Um, it's near the sand dunes. Um, many of you know the sand dunes and, you know, some of the famous 14ers, since this is a 14er blog. And you know, I've climbed Blanca several times. My mom actually now lives at the base of the Crestone Peaks in Crestone. So I've yeah. so cool. been a big piece of my life. Um, but the bottom line is, is, I grew up in Alamosa, a small town, and grew up skiing at Wolf Creek. And, you know, Wolf Creek gets a lot of snow and it didn't take long. I, I started skiing at three. It was a passion of mine. My dad and my mom would go and me and my sister. And, um, you know, basically from eight, nine, 10 on, as soon as I tasted that deep powder and that floating feeling, I would would then be at home this is starting at about 10 11 12 maybe I would look at the weather channel to try to gauge when the storms were coming you know there was no computer no internet at that point I I mean it was just tv and I would just try to gauge what they were saying and be like is are they going to get dumped on and of course they would undercut the forecast because it was you know there's a storm coming but Wolf Creek will get like three times as much snow as the surrounding areas and so I would watch the weather channel and Basically, as we got into high school, you know, I'd watch the Weather Channel. My friends would give me a lot of hard time about it. But ultimately, I think it was my cousin or somebody who was like, Hey, you know, you could do weather as a job. And I was like, Oh, really? I had, I had no idea. You know, they're like, he's like, There's a meteorology degree, and you know, you can go and study the weather and be a weatherman or be, do weather research. And so at that point, I think that was like my sophomore, junior year. I was like, That's, that's what I want to do because I want to forecast so I can go ski some more pow. So,
0: <laughs> absolutely.
2: That's, that's so basically. perfect.
0: And is that someone who's a, like math, calculus, physics background, or what, what is a meteorology degree study?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because actually, when I was uh, so a little bit of background there, um, I went from Alamosa and, and just to get away from it all for two years, I went to upstate New York. A lot of my family's from the West Coast, so I just wanted something different. I knew the skiing wasn't going to be as good, but at least there was some skiing there in upstate. Lot I had of- a great time there. Um, and then I came back to see you, and at the time, they actually didn't offer a, a major in meteorology. They, what they did was it was a major in physics and a minor in meteorology, and it's physics-based because basically what I tell people is you can think of the atmosphere like a fluid. It's fluid dynamics. And really a good example of this is like if you took a river with laminar flow, even flow, right, and you stuck a rock in the middle, you can see how it bends the water. And just by bending the water, you're, you're actually causing vertical motion in the three-dimensional space, right? You can't see it. But the bend causes the water below it to rise faster into that bend. That's like a, an area of low pressure. Yeah. So it's all physics based, and it's you know it's really based on like conservation of momentum, conservation of energy, and then you have the forces around the Earth, which are like you know the pressure gradient force, the gravitational force, the Coriolis force, which has to do with you know Earth being round and it's spinning. So it's all physics based. It's basically like thermodynamics and fluid dynamics, but with air. And so I got a minor in. In, in um, atmospheric science and a major in physics, but then I went back and got my master's degree in atmospheric science from CU while I was working at NCAR.
1: So, without giving away too many trade secrets, because you obviously, for the most part, have this thing dialed in, can you talk to us a, a little bit about your modeling and what goes into your forecasting?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's, it's not really too much of a secret in the sense some people have even asked me, they're like, oh, you must be using proprietary models or models that the public can't see. And I'm like, no, actually everything I look at for the most part is publicly available. I'm going through publicly available websites to look at the model data that's, that has nothing to do with my weather page. So, you know, the, the bottom line is, is the way that you get good at forecasting, well, there's a, there's a couple things. I think one of the advantages I have is you need to be a local. I mean, everyone talks about that. You have to understand the local terrain. One thing in Colorado is the terrain impacts everything weather-wise, right? I've always told people in Denver, Boulder, there's a a very small difference between two inches of snow and nothing. Like you could have a wind shift just going from slightly northeast to northwest. And instead of three inches, you get completely downslope flow. So one is is being local. And then two, what I do is I look at a combination of models. Now, some of this does come from work in the sense that we build forecasting systems where it's using statistics to blend models based on their performance. So I take that myself and I say, what models have been performing? Look at several models. And you know, for, for example, when you're three or four days out, you look at the global models, right? Like the European model, the ECMWF, which does really well with the wave pattern, right? Like three or four days out. We also have the, the American global model, the GFS. Those are great for getting the overall, like are we gonna get a storm or not? Then as you get within about two days, two or three days, you start to look at these high resolution models, right? Where when I say high resolution, it's modeling the terrain. Right. The model grid spacing goes down from, let's say, you know, 12 kilometers down to like three kilometers. But those models are inaccurate after two days because, you, you know, the errors get compounded. So the bottom line is, as you look at a combination of models, as you get closer, you look at high resolution models. You need to kind of have an idea of how the models are performing related to reality. How do they do in the past? And then it's just a matter of over and over and over again. I've done this so much that I can like look at the setup and be like, based on the wind direction and what I know about Colorado, it's probably gonna be this amount of snow. And I'll even do things like in my mind, like I do the, the, the snow conversion myself. Like I know enough about Colorado, like, oh, it's gonna be higher ratios up in the mountains and we're gonna have these kind of ratios down on the front range. So, you know, you look at the setup, the wind direction, the precept, and then you can formulate a forecast. And then the last thing I'll say about it, people always ask is, you know, I'll call it like I see it. I've learned that what you do is, is you look at the combination of models and you keep looking every day and you, you call it like you see it, you change it. If it changes, it changes. Sometimes that's disappointing to people because it's like, there's a storm there, now it's not. But that's just how it is weather-wise. I mean, it's a chaotic
0: system that you're trying to model. Yes.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: So it sounds like the national models kind of get you like into Fenway Park. They tell you what ballpark you're in and then you kind of use past data and your own knowledge of Colorado to kind of like say what the forecast is on you know, row seven, seat seven, in the ballpark? Or, or.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's something like, I mean, the thing that I'd clarify is this, is you, the global models are good at, let's say, the two to five day horizon, right? So when we're, we're five days out, like, I mean, that snowstorm, right, was accurately predicted by the European model six days out. It literally, it almost didn't waver the entire forecast. That's pretty amazing. You usually know there's a big event coming when that's the case. I mean, for one thing I'll say is, is that for the most part, beyond about five or six days, the uncertainty is extremely high. You know, you just, you cannot trust a forecast beyond five or six days in the winter. So within five days, there's a signal there. And then my point was, you can still look at those models as reference. There's higher resolution models that don't go out as far. So there's models that like, let's say only go out to two days, 48 hours or 72 hours. So once we get in with that time horizon, then I start looking at those. Those will really tell you the local effects like, oh, the winds out of the Northeast. So it's going to load the snow up on the continental divide, you know, near the Indian peaks. Or it's out of the northwest. And so the Gore Range is going to get heavy snow and, you know, parts of Vale are up by Steamboat. So, you know, those are the kind of things you have to look at. But you just have to keep looking at it over and over and over. That's, that's the way you forecast well.
1: So you said it's useless more than, you know, four or five or six days out. What about these very generic seasonal forecasts that we get? Do you just roll your eyes when you see something like the Farmer's Almanac that's like, ah, cold and snowy, exceptionally, you know, like,
0: <laughs> what's your take on that? Don't believe the farmer's all in first and foremost. Okay. Shit on Ben Franklin.
3: Okay, wait a minute. What about fuzzy caterpillars? Have you ever heard this?
2: The black ones. That like the, the fuzzier the caterpillars are, it indicates that a cold winter's coming or something and, like and that. And the
3: ones that are all black, the fuzzy caterpillars that are all black means that it's gonna be a big winter. If there's some orange and some black, depending on what it is, they're gonna be. A little more, you know, later summer, more winter, and then if they're all orange, it's going to be a big summer. Have you heard this at all?
2: A little bit, yeah, I have, and you know, I don't yeah, know. right. He's like,
3: he's like, I've heard it.
2: I think it's, but um, yeah, I can speak a little bit to the seasonal forecast. I mean, I put some seasonal forecasts out on my blog, as you guys have seen. Right. Um, they are right for air. It's hard. I mean, accurately predicting the weather beyond five days is hard. Beyond ten days, it's really hard, and. Doing very accurate sort of seasonal predictions where you're like, you're going to get this much snow or it's going to be this cold is very hard. You typically got to say, well, chances of above average or below average, right? And that can vary greatly. As we know, Enso, La Nina, El Nino have a big impact on it. There's a lot of other factors. There's the madden Julian Oscillation in the Pacific. There's the North Atlantic Oscillation. But the bottom line is, is that typically we do have some sort of signal from like La Nina or El Nino. So a lot of it's based on that. So you just sort of of have to look at the the trends, like what happened in the past. You know, I would mentioned like you look at analogs. Analogs is like, well, what year in the past was similar to this year in terms of the temperatures in the ocean, the upper level setup. And you try to make some call. But, you know, it it can be – look, last year, I'll be honest with you. I I went into the fall and I said, oh, it's neutral based on what I'm seeing. We had a really hot September. I was like, we're going to have a prolonged fall. No snow till November, late start, big storms in the, in the spring. Starting at the end of October, we just got absolutely pounded with storms for like six weeks straight. And I, I was like, that was completely unexpected last year. We you called
3: know? it snow Well,
2: yeah, I, I mean, it snowed. It basically, even in October, we had three snowstorms last year in October and then another three in November or something. I mean, we had last year at my house, I had recorded 50 inches of snow by December 1st. That's just it's un- wow. unprecedented.
1: It was a good year to be in snow removal on the front range.
2: Yeah, yeah, in evergreen, yeah. I mean, evergreen, right, got, you know, over 100 inches of snow last year. So. It was that our total?
1: Holy cow, that's amazing.
3: Well, you heard it here first, folks. The woolly worms, caterpillars, are totally accurate and can <laughs> yeah, be <right>. totally trusted <laughs> for their color-coordinated
0: climate. <laughs> woolly
1: worms it, weather it report. <laughs> woolly worms weather report. We'll see how it does. <laughs> not <good. laughs> okay. It's
3: not going to do well, Seth.
2: I, I mean, the animals, you know, there's something there. I don't know. I have this woman on my weather report, Daisy, who she's every year. She's been on there a long time. And she'll always give me her take based on, you know, her local animals in her yard and the leaves and the flowers. And, you know, she's trying to make a call based on uh, the senses she's getting. <laughs> that is Maybe there's something there. I don't know. I, I I usually tell her to look at the models. <laughs> 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 the cows are laying down. The storm's coming in. Isn't That's that right. Another? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, animals can sense things as far as weather events. I mean, but that's typically like an impending, you know, like hurricane or something or right. some really large event. Um, so I, it's hard to say. You know, seasonally, I, I bet you if you really looked at it, it would be a crapshoot statistically. <laughs> if you looked at the whole winter after that happened, you know what I mean? Was it warmer or colder? Yeah.
3: So I'm not going to Vegas with those odds. Yeah. No, so. Okay. okay All right.
0: One. I got a coworker that lives in Creed so not too far from Alamosa, and she skis Wolf Creek. And they always say that they watch the, the rain in San Diego as a predictor of whether Wolf Creek's gonna get hit by snow. Is that a wives tale, or is that just some like local legend, or is there there's some scientific truth to weather and rain precipitation in San Diego forcing snow in Wolf Creek?
2: Well, there's a connection there in the sense that she's right in the sense, I mean, it's not like forcing it, it's what we talked about. When the storm track is coming across San Diego, right? Southern California, that's going to put it right in line to come into Southern Colorado. So typically when you see big upper level lows during the winter that bring a lot of rain to San Diego, that's more typical during an El Nino year. That's going to bring the big upper level low usually comes right across Southern Utah into Southern Colorado. So Wolf Creek will typically get a lot of snow. You need that sort of Southern branch. You know, the jet stream is just this one sort of monolithic you know, the, the way that I explain the jet stream to people is this. I mean, think about it this way. During the winter, right, in north central Canada, the temperature is 60 below zero. And at the equator, it's 80. Think about that difference, right? That temperature difference drives the pressure gradient, creates the jet stream that sets up over, you know, the northern latitudes. During the, during the summer, right, it can be 60, 70 degrees above zero in, in Canada. And 70 or 80, there's very little difference between the equator and Canada the jet stream goes away. It's all driven by these pressure gradients. And so the last thing that I'll say about that is, is that El Nino, or when Wolf Creek, sometimes you can get these branches, it's all part of the same jet stream, but it's either the Northern branch is stronger or the Southern branch. And when the Southern branch is stronger, like with El Nino, you get a lot of rain in California and it comes across into Southern Colorado. This year with El Nino, you know, the current forecast, this is a nice tie-in. It does show basically, you know, it's a more Northern branch kind of be going to be typical of the pattern we're going to see next week which where you know it's up north and these storms are coming across sort of missing basically missing colorado coming into the upper midwest and then east and hmm. so although i will say this as, as the winter progresses the jet stream is going to drop south and, and if we can get the good northwest flow going la nina can actually be quite good for the northern mountains i mean some of the biggest snowfall years for loveland and Brack and vale have been la nina years
1: oh wow interesting
0: have you ever been tempted to uh, lie about the forecast when you're going to ski and say it's going to have zero, zero powder. So you're the only one out there.
2: No, <laughs> and I'll tell you why, man, I don't know. It's, it's my personality, like, and, and people have even I, look. I've corrected posts. Uh, I, I am certainly somebody that I really value science, fact and truth and, you know, science and fact, I'm a very scientific person, scientific method. And, you know, especially in this day and age, dude, facts count in my mind. And I will correct a post. I always try to make the forecast as accurate as I possibly can. I get the whole thing about, you know, zones. I won't post specific zones. I mean, I have some areas, as you guys do too, that, you know, it's like I want to keep going to these places and ski deep pow without a ton of people. But when it comes to the weather forecasting and answering people's, I try to be as accurate as possible. I will correct the record if I need to. If I put something down that's not right, I'll change it.
3: I love that. So
1: you mentioned you're, you're a science guy. You also mentioned earlier in the podcast, you attributed the the September freak storm to climate change. Do you care to kind of build on that or speculate on that at all or share your opinion?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, I'm a scientist that work at MCART. You know, human-caused climate change is are the real deal. You know, I get a lot of back and forth from people. The easiest way to think about it, this has to do with the rate of change, right? In the sense that, You know, you look at the temperatures, yes. You know, I see a lot of people saying the temperatures have always changed. Yes, they have. But the rate that it's changing in the last 50 to 100 years is unprecedented. That's, that rate of change actually isn't in the climate record. Have we had big changes? Yes, over time. But it's the rate of change recently. But yes, so the thing too that's a complicating factor with climate change is, you know, we're adding a lot of heat to the atmosphere. It it has a big impact on the weather patterns. But it it can go, like I said, it can create more dynamic and variable patterns in the sense that in North America, you're still going to have winter events. You're still going to have cold snaps. And I told you there's sometimes where a big area of high pressure moves into Alaska. We had this even last year, record highs, and it pushes record cold air down into the U.S. And I've seen people make comments climate change isn't real it's so cold in new york and i'm like look at the temperatures in fairbanks right now right it's zero it may be zero in new york but it's 50 degrees in fairbanks in january
1: which is why i think the scientific community moved away from the term global warming into climate change right
2: yeah so you know the last thing i'll add to that absolutely it's going to impact you know one good way to think about it in colorado is and we've seen this i mean california is a case study for this hotter and drier droughts Followed by wetter and crazier storms. I mean, look at Cali. One thing there that I, if you noticed, they've had this cycle. where They have atmospheric rivers on top of atmospheric rivers during the winter.
3: Right.
2: Super wet. All the foliage grows. And then they hit this spell where it's absolutely dry, completely dry. And everything just dries out. And then it just goes on fire. And so they have these crazy cycles. And even in Colorado, you know, you've seen this. And even this last year was a good example. We're going to have drier droughts and hotter heat waves. We just came off – I'll just say this. We just came off one of the hottest August on record for the state. For many mountain locations, it was the hottest and driest August ever recorded. Oh. So, but, you know, and then we got followed by a freak snowstorm in September. And now, now we're back to literally, I think, tomorrow, tomorrow and Saturday, we're going to break record highs again. We could break the all-time high. I mean, we're going to be approaching the all-time high for September.
1: Following a record, wow. you know, half season worth of snow in Alamosa, that's just wild. And, like, for you know this, too, from a skiing perspective, what – I mean, obviously, it's a huge issue, but on, like, a micro level, from a skiing perspective, these early season snows make me nervous, too. From, you know, especially in Colorado, you develop that depth core that sticks around all season, and then that is just – that's the, the early buildings of our persistent slab problem that lingers all year. And so I don't think our persistent slab problem in Colorado's – but, yeah those, yeah, those early season snows freak me out, setting it up really poorly for the rest of the season for the snowpack. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that always concerns me. Um, the more that I backcountry skied, you know, I've been backcountry skiing now for over 10 years, a lot more seriously in the last, like, three or four years. I actually got caught in a slide last year. We can talk about that a little bit later. But, yeah, so absolutely. That's something I'm, I'm always aware of. I think that this snow, for the most part, was probably too early. There's been some pictures on the backcountry group Have you seen Where there is some snow hanging on in certain zones on north facing slopes, that could probably cause an issue. It's not, you need a bigger layer, in my opinion. But there's no doubt, Jace, that like even last year there was a big concern. I think most of it got buried. If you get, let's say, end of September, early October, one or two feet, and then you get a break for about three or four weeks, that's very dangerous, right? Because not only is that snow sitting there and that's a sliding surface, you get horror frost formation, right? You get facets that form on north-facing slopes on that snow. That creates a very dangerous layer. And if you look at some of the most dangerous years, like 2010, 2011, which was La Nina, they had an early season snow, and it set up one of the worst deep slab problems that the state saw. That's the year in March, unfortunately, or I might be getting my years confused, but one of the years where in March, the guys died near Loveland, right? And that reacted, that was in March, but it reacted on a deep slab that had been buried from the fall. So... It's something i always think about i mean the pref the preference here in colorado everyone that i talk to the skis would be like turn the snow machine on sort of tw- at the end of october or mi- mid october and don't stop right because then those layers get buried but yeah yeah we have dangerous conditions here in colorado unfortunately
1: some of the worst which is a blessing and a curse because it's also why we get the world's best avalanche forecasters because it's the most interesting snowpack here but it's a really bad sign that all the best ones come here so their job's not boring so I'd like to circle back to that. If you're comfortable talking about it, um, I remember you made a really great, kind of informative and introspective post about when you got slid on Jones Pass last year. Do you mind
2: kind of sharing that story a little bit? Yeah, not at all. I mean, look, it's um, we're all here to learn. You know, you spend a ton of time in the backcountry. I really admire all of you, um, and you know, it's a passion for all of us. I mean, I'd say it's. It brings. I know it's the same for you guys. It brings me the most joy of anything I do outside of my family. You know, I mean, it's it's by far the most gratifying experience in life so i'm not going to stop backcountry skiing but yeah so last year you know kind of a classic case um the season was building up you know we had started getting a bunch of snow in november and in my mind i kind of felt like because sometimes if it snows uh, some and you can get several snowstorms, you can get a couple feet the fall conditions can kind of be like spring in the sense that you don't quite have enough snow to really produce big avalanches you have to be cautious, but you can maybe sometimes ski at slightly steeper slopes. In my mind, I was like, it's still transitioning. We had gone up to Jones Pass, uh, me and a partner, my buddy Chuck, who I've skied with a lot. And I think it was end of November, beginning of December. I think it was the end of November. And it had just snowed and it was snowing. And, and basically, in my mind, I was like, we're going to, you know, well, the plan was to push to the top of Jones Pass. And initially, the visibility was fine. As we got up you know, above treeline, the vis started to drop. And, you know, the bottom line is, is there was a couple of big mistakes that were made. And, and one was is that, you know, we had planned on basically just, like, getting to the top of the pass and then making a decision point and trying to figure out where we want to ski. And, of course, you know, being early season, I definitely had that powder fever. And, and you typically, you know, you take, you've been up there probably, Jace, right? You take the road. You yep. can skin the road all the way up, right? So we were on the road. And, and in my mind, I've been up there. I've skied lines up there. I'm like, we're on the road. You're yeah. good. Like, I, the bottom line is is we got near the top the biz completely dropped and then what I didn't realize is there had been enough snow already that it had basically drifted over the road and before I even realized it I was like where's the road like I'm I'm now on the side slope the road's completely filled in and what you don't realize is near the top when the road fills in it's a greater than 35 degree slope with no road which is like okay now you're on and so The viz dropped. I looked at my topo map. You know, I always have an offline topo. And I was like, we're near the pass. I I yelled back. I was like, let's get to the pass and make a decision. I can't see. It's uncomfortable. And it was just a mistake. I just pushed through like for another five, 10 minutes. The viz dropped. The road was gone. And basically, I just stepped onto a big wind slab right near the top.
1: Were you guys above treeline or were you below treeline? Were like where Were you in the bowl above the bowl where were you when that happened
2: we were right on the top of, we were right on the top of jones bowl we were well about we were at the top of the road dude we were almost to the pass i'm talking like i kicked off this avalanche within 15 yards of the top of the pass wow okay so i didn't mean to interrupt okay. so you you stepped out onto this huge wind slab so yeah we're near the top dude the visibility drops i mean you couldn't even see the true pass and even jones bowl which is like that's a that was a huge red flag in my i was like And so then I pushed another five minutes, stepped onto a big wind slab and you know, look, I've had experiences with smaller slough slides, wet slides, managing that. This was the first time, like literally like the entire slope fractured. It was like, boom, you know what I mean? Immediately sucked in and it started going and you know, I pulled my airbag. The good thing is, is that location is it went down onto a little roll. I was like, this thing is going to take me all the way down Jones bowl and if I don't have my airbag, I'm getting sucked under the, the, I've never felt a force like that in my life. Like the, the power of the, the snow blocks pulling you in is just like, you can't escape it. And I was like, even with an airbag, I didn't know if I, but it, it, it went about 60 yards and then it stopped on a rollover. And I was just freaked out. Me and my, obviously we got out of there as quick as we could, but it was just. It, were
3: you, did you get submerged or were you able to kind of stay on the surface?
2: Yeah, luckily I didn't. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have absolutely needed the airbag just in terms of when, where it stopped. If it would have progressed, no doubt. I pulled the airbag for safety because I thought I was going all the way down the slope. But I got, I got basically buried up to about like my stomach. And, you know, it took a while to like dig out. Luckily my... Oh, and the other thing too is I was skinning and so I was locked in. Yes. You no. Know, oh. I lock my binding typically when I'm skinning because you don't want... And dude, it's like those skis aren't coming off, and I could just feel them getting sucked in, twisting. And oh, Oh, dude, I I was like, I'm done. I I knew in the split second, I was like, this is a real bad deal if this thing doesn't stop. That's
3: one of a big fear for touring as split boarders. Yeah. Because we're, uh, Jason and I split board, and so.
1: You can't ditch them in a slide. I mean, the idea is not to get caught in one, but if you do, you can't ditch them. That's freaky. Holy cow. Were there any injuries other than just kind of mental and emotional?
2: Yeah, no, luckily. I mean, all things considered, you know, there, it could be way worse. There's a lot worse incidents than that, of course, as we know, you know. So, no, it just really rattled, you know, both my partner and I, we both felt like we made, and, and the weather just turned so shitty, right? So you're like, he's freaking out. I'm trying to get back to the road. I got my airbag deployed. The weather's shitty. I, I, I have to put my airbag back. It's like a blizzard. You know, I'm super rattled. Um, everyone's like not, you know, upset. Yeah. so yeah it was a big learning we we touched base about it both that day and then later you know it was better because emotions were running so high that day but but I'm um, a really good learning experience and you know I have kids so it's just it was a huge wake-up call i um, got to be safe I mean it's it's always a risk in the backcountry
0: um, Colorado Sun had an article last week about we average six deaths a year of avalanche and now they've already seen record number of backcountry ski sales. And with all the COVID reservations on the inbound skiing, they're gonna see even more backcountry every what's what's the advice to all these people going to the backcountry for the first time, never taken an RE1 class or RE2 class or know anything about persistent slabs or hoarfrost or woolly?
3: so many willy caterpillar
2: jokes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean chris chris you bring up a really good point it's been talked about a lot um in the community um you know and yeah i've seen it myself there's a humongous uptick in people wanting to backcountry ski because of covid and um, people are very worried i'd say you know the most important thing as a novice is checking the avalanche forecast initially that's not the end-all be-all you know i've had some people say like of course that's not the end all be all that's the starting point point. and as a beginner it really should actually indicate whether you go or you don't for people like us it's a bit different i won't get into that you know i still trust the forecast but there's certain levels that i'm more comfortable with like you guys are and i know where to go when it's worse but the bottom line is you check the forecast for your zone you know and just at the very at the very lowest level just saying saying like hey it's, it's considerable or higher. I'm not going out. I mean, I think that's a really good advice for a lot of beginners. If it's orange or higher, don't go. It's just too much risk. Um, even, even yellow can have, cons- you know, it's, it's moderate, but that doesn't mean moderate. I think that's, it's not well stated. It's, it can be very dangerous in spots under a moderate. Um, the day I got caught, I think was a moderate. A lot of people get caught on moderate days. So one is checking the forecast. Knowing the weather is important. So, you know, being on Seth's weather report, you know, you got to understand it. How much snow fell? How windy was it? If it's more than six inches of snow and the wind's greater than 40 miles an hour, we're talking about big time slab development up, up high. You got to be extremely cautious. And then, you know, beyond that, you know, taper your expectations because as we all know, and I try to tell people backcountry skiing is really more about and split boarding is more about spending a lot more time on the ascent. I mean, I tell people, you know, some spring days, it's like, I just spent five hours climbing and 45 minutes skiing. And it was, or I've had days where it's like, I spent five hours time and I skied for 10 minutes and it was right. awesome. You know, and, and, and so one thing I've learned that I try to follow from the people that taught me how to ski was don't do aggressive lines in the middle of the winter. You know, there's, there's all levels of experience. I'm not saying that for everyone. But for beginners, you know, stick with the lower angles, lower than 30, you know, 30 degrees or lower. Stick with the trees. Don't push it above. I try not to push it really hard above tree line into big, like steep couillards during the winter. That's that's for the spring. Wait till April, May to do the big lines. That's that's the last piece of advice. Don't 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 push the terrain. You know, stay on mellow terrain if you can.
1: For us it's almost like two different seasons. We have like the winter where we're like lower in Jones and we do the Vasquez trees and just kind of make a bunch yeah. of laps and then like and it's not even month. It's like a snowpack shift when that persistent slab <laughs> problem goes away, you see like a week of low danger then it's game on, and that's like season two of like April and May when you can kind of get after it. But it almost is two distinct seasons.
3: And I am all about the low-angle wiggles. Yeah, <laughs> I will low-angle wiggle for, for days.
2: Any, any powder skiing is good powder skiing in my book for the most part. I agree. And I completely agree with you, Jace, that it's like two seasons. And the other reminder I'll have, it was just a reminder. You know, even last year we had this really quiet period in March, and it stabilized. It went green. Everyone started getting after it, but then the April snow came, and what I saw was, you know, you do still get these, like, either, like, storm slab or wet slab-type slides on top of that firm surface, yeah. and I, I saw a couple of videos of humongous slides rip out in the Gore Range, and near Bertha, like, in April. I was up in Bertha a lot in April, and I saw people skiing, like, I was like, why are, like, it's not safe enough to ski. Right. Like, people were skiing the fingers, you know, on the west side, kicking yeah. off slides left and right. I'm like, you're going to get raked across rocks. Right there, like so. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, there's definitely a split the season, but even then, in April, you have to be any anytime you get you know two feet of snow, whether it's April or May, you you got to be really cautious.
1: I think that's a really fair play too, and I I am victim to that mentality of like when when the danger drops to low, I kind of like you know take out the stiff boots and like ready to get after it, and kind of you know if another storm stacks on top of that, I'm prone to thinking like it's still safe. And I kind of, I put my avalanche forecasting hat on the shelf after the danger goes low for a while. And that's a really good reminder to continually check it. You know, it's just because the danger is low doesn't mean, and just because the calendar says May doesn't mean you're not going to get slid. That's huge.
2: I was just going to say, you know, I mean, the only thing I'd mention exactly, Jace, just, I mean, people probably that are listening to this, you know, and you knew this from the, 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 the group, I mean, Aaron Wiener, right? Dude, on, on uh, oh, what big eyes you have up in the Gore Range, dude. I mean, oh, yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. It's it stabilized, and then the April snow came, and they kicked off a deadly storm slab. And that slab itself at the top was only like a foot deep, but you're in super consequential terrain, and he got swept down the entire chute. And, I mean, that's that's the type of thing, man. It's like, it doesn't take much. You get a one-foot slab on top of a sliding surface, and you're in a steep couloir in April. Done deal. I mean, so... gotta be really careful
1: be really interesting to see what happens this
0: this season with all the new backcountry people so seth you you look at all these yeah differential equations and mathematical models can you talk about what you look at when you're out actually on the mountain either hiking or skinning or skiing is there stuff you read are you looking at clouds or wind or dropping temperature or facets of snow or can you speak to the kind of the stuff that you gain from a weatherman on the mountain
2: yeah. Yeah. I, I can speak to both the weather and the snow observations. I think they go kind of hand in hand. And I did, you know, one thing I'd say too, uh, just going back a little bit, Chris, is that I've skied backcountry a lot, but I had not actually an airy course until last year, which I really enjoyed. And it really opened my eyes to, to some of the science. I'd had a lot of experience from friends, you know what I mean? And so, but it was good to, to take it because it really talks about observations. And so it leads right into your question in the sense that, Absolutely. When I'm out, I mean, first of all, when I'm approaching, even in a car, I'll look, always look up top and say, hey, are there plumes of snow coming off the peaks? That's a dead, that's a dead giveaway that you have strong winds and there's wind loading. So you always say, you know, do I, I see plumes of snow coming off. That's one sign. And then always when you get out, you know, what's the wind, what's the snowfall, what's the temperatures, you know, you know, and I always think about things like, you know, is 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 it an upside down or a right side up snowpack? That's weather related, right? And you guys know this, but for everyone out there that doesn't, you know, when you always want to have sort of, you want to have soft on top of hard, not the other way around in terms of avalanche conditions. And the easiest way to think about it is this, the March, 2019 classic case, you had a big warm atmospheric river event, or sorry, I got it reversed. You had a, leading up to that, you got a big cold event, right? First. So drop two to three feet of really cold snow. There was like an Arctic branch. So very light density snow. Then right after that, within two or three days, an atmospheric river event set up with heavy, wet snow. So you got now three feet of heavy, wet snow sitting on three feet of like really light powder. That's an absolute recipe for disaster. Like that's like you're gonna break through and the entire column's gonna slide and that's what happened everywhere. And so one thing I think about is like, how warm was it before? How cold is it now? You prefer it to go from warm to cold, right? And then you look at things like is the is it windy how much is it snowing and then i think one of the most important things for you know skiing on 14ers and in avalanche terrain and this takes practice is looking at the actual slopes and okay i have wind coming out of the west so it's going to load on the lee side on the east side or it's out of the north so it's loading the southern slopes And, and what are the slope features you know are the rocks are there you know how is the slope shaped and and you guys know, it's like you train your eyes to be like, I can see that slab. There's a slab sitting right there. And, and so I always am, I'm always looking for those kind of, and then also too, and I think, you know, you guys probably just always along the way, you know, I don't dig a lot of pits. I dig dug pits. I'll do a lot of hand pits. Yeah. And I'll do checking. Probing. Always, in the books, always check a slope if you go past it. So if there's a test slope, I'll jump on it. Am I getting reaction? And is, is, it, is it sliding at all? And those kind of things. And so I think it goes hand in hand, but. You know, weather-wise, when you're out there, the most important thing is how much snow has fallen, what's, how, much wind, how windy is it, and what's the wind direction? And where am I going to get the loading? That's really important things to recognize.
1: So a lot of our audiences, I mean, we've talked a lot about snow and us being like powder hounds. We love this stuff. A lot of our audience are fair weather hikers, and a lot of the 14-year climbing gets done between June and September. Um, can you share a little bit about thunderstorms and what to, what to look for on the mountain? during the summer months? Cause that is almost as deadly in Colorado. It's, it's as much of a hazard as avalanches. I'll say it's not as deadly, but.
2: Absolutely. And I think it, it, for 14 or hiking, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it's the biggest concern for most hikers is getting caught in a thunderstorm up high. Um, that's a question I get all the time. One thing I'll say is thunderstorm forecasting is actually harder than forecasting snow huh. because we're talking about, smaller events, right? The thunderstorms are actually smaller. Even a complex of thunderstorms is smaller than a big winter storm. And, and you can see all the right ingredients, but it's very hard, even at this point, to say where an ex- exactly a storm's gonna be at the exact time. We're not, not quite there yet, right? Sometimes the models, if there's a strong front, it can show you. So one, you know, I always get this question that, you know, I tell people, one, the weather apps during the summer aren't that good, because they'll have these really broad brush, like, there was, a, there was a time in August where it was like every single day it was saying 70 to 80% chance of storms in the afternoon, right, on these peaks. That wasn't the case, you know, and so you gotta have to understand, you know, so one thing to look for, I guess, you know, you know the weather forecast can be inaccurate when it comes to thunderstorms. You should be aware to some degree if it's, it's, if it's really gonna be a bad thunderstorm day afternoon or not, which typically, but beside that, you look for, you know, a lot of the classic signs, like how fast are the clouds building in the morning? If you see clouds consolidating near the peaks at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, right, that's usually a sign. You know, if you're starting to see clouds darken towards the morning, you know, I've had to hustle up 14ers because of that. Um, you know, you look for clouds in the distance. I mean, by the time you hear thunder, it's typically too late. Um, you know, it's hard to judge how much humidity is in the atmosphere. Um, it, it, it's a hard thing, but I think the main thing is you look for is, is, you know, how many clouds are developing? How quickly do you have development going? But um, it's a very tricky thing. And I, I'd say the biggest advice that most people know that is try to go early during the summer. Um, but, you know, there's days when thunderstorms can pop at 10
0: a.m., unfortunately. Is there a way to distinguish between, like, just getting cloudy and then, like, thunderstorms starting to stack? Like, how do you distinguish between us? Is there a good way to like – Yeah, non. Just- yeah, non threatening crowd and thunderstorm cloud.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one easy way to discern that to some degree, and it does depend a bit on time of day, but let's just say it's the middle of the day. If you see a cloud form and then the base really starts to darken, right? The base, you're looking up at it, and it's turning from light white to gray to a darker gray-blue, you know, like a darker... So darker clouds, um, you can't see above it, but that means that you're, you're just stacking up the clouds above you. Um, you know, sometimes in the early mornings, if, if there's a lot of humidity, you'll see fog. And I've had that experience on Quandary many years ago where the fog starts to rise up. So that, that's rising motion, right? You need rising motion to get thunderstorms. Yeah. And so seeing the fog start to rise as it heats up, I was like, oh, that's conve- convection is just rising air. You know, and so you're starting to get convection, so that's one thing that you can look for. But you basically look for darkening clouds. Be aware of in the distance, do you see dark clouds on the horizon? Those can approach very quickly. Um, and then, of course, if you hear any sort of thunder, that's also a sign that typically <laughs> means close.
1: So, the age old debate, and there's a lot of schools of thought on this, but what what do you do if you're caught in a storm? There's like kind of the, the running camp and there's the crouch lightning position camp.
3: no dude, there's a third camp it's the throwing your poles down the cooler camp. Chris
1: knows all about that short one.
3: Short road stifflers approach. Nice. Nah,
0: dude. <laughs> yeah. Nah, dude. Nah,
1: dude. Nah, dude. What you say? I cannot do it. You said it was tough. I say nothing to it. What you did was cool, but what I did was cooler. If your route was grueling, then mine was a uh, You're the ultimate one. Wanna-
2: being the weatherman i've been in all those camps at some point trying everything i mean even doing things you're not supposed to like this is a big tree and it's not the highest tree let's go stand under it because it's dry (laughs) you know typically you're not supposed to do that but um you know get down don't be the highest point it's always important to get lower that helps tremendously just getting lower you're exposed it's true try to find i mean i've had this situation and this isn't always possible try to find some rock covering that's the best if you can find a rock covering any sort of rock or you know hard surface that can cover you a bit get underneath it or get in the lowest spot or you know it's a little more dangerous if it's an absolute downpour and you know you can't get wet try not to be at the higher try to be at a lower spot but try to get under a tree that's not as high but has good coverage you know it, there is a risk there of obviously lightning hitting a tree if you're up higher but you basically want to get lower and the recommended advice is not to stay under a tree, but to be, you know, basically under a rock or at the lowest point near a rock, but you could end up getting really wet.
1: We had that happen, hiking up. Um, yeah. That's a bad way to start a story about lightning. We were hiking up. Uh, <laughs> we, we were hiking up toward Blanca up Lake Como road. And like, I'm from the front range, so I can observe and predict how the storms move on the front range. But I was like a fish out of water in the sand grays watching this thing just build vertically over us. But I thought we were okay and we, we were going up and then this party of guys coming down were like oh yeah it's passing that way and plus you're below treeline so you're totally fine and like lightning's crashing around us i'm like what a misconception like we could still totally get struck and we you know don't do what we did we kept going up and we were we were safe but it uh yeah i can't believe that like that that is a misconception that you can be in tree line and still be safe like that's that's not the case at all
2: no and, and it just depends on where the storm is. I agree. That's, um, I mean, it's better to be at tree line than above tree line. There's no doubt about that during a storm. But, um, you know, yeah, you, you don't want to be next to a really big exposed tree. You know, but there's times when shelter is required. I don't know. You know, it's you don't want to get wet and cold. I guess during the winter, yeah, we don't have to deal with lightning. So it's a bit different if it's snowing. But Totally. Yeah. If, if thunderstorms are hard. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to deal with. It's a hard forecast. It's hard to understand even for a meteorologist.
3: Yeah, we were, um, Seth, I was going to ask you the question. We were actually climbing uh, peak and needle. Um, and <laughs> we ran into a rescue. Actually, it's kind of a long story. There was someone getting rescued off of the traverse, another podcast, another time. Um, but we ran into a rescue guy and he said, yeah, anytime a storm comes through the sand graze, it's going to hail.
1: Yeah. And, he, yeah, he told us that. He's like, yeah, it always brings hail anytime it rains in the sand I'm like, that's And we like, weird. That's,
3: that's bizarre. That's strange. And so we were, you know, down in camp. We had climbed both peaks. Everything was great. Eating our dinner. Kid you not. The, out of nowhere. Out of absolutely nowhere. The craziest thunder and lightning storm and probably five inches of hail. Well, six
1: inches of hail. For an hour and a half, crashing lightning and huge pellets of hail. Yeah. Shout out to Nemo. My dagger tent passed the hail test for an hour and a half. Like dime-sized hail, and then it stopped. And I stepped out of my tent to take a leak—ankle-deep water—and this was like mid-August. Wow.
3: We, I, it was like I ankle-deep never... standing
1: water, and the storm just moved out. It was crazy.
3: And so I was—I, I mean, front again, front range. We've grown up in the front range, Jason and I, our whole lives, and that's not the case all the time. You know, thunderstorms don't always bring hail. And so the fact that he said that, and then we got five inches of hail
2: blew my mind. you yeah,
1: were like, whatever, dude, it's blue skies. We like had dinner, went to bed. It was nice. And then out of nowhere, it was wild. Have you had that experience at all growing up in the Sangres?
2: Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, he's partially right. It's not specific to the Sangres. It's specific to the high mountains in general. <laughs> <laughs> that might've <have> been it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in the easiest way to think about it is, is that the atmosphere is elevated. It's colder, right? The whole column Right, if you look at the column from Denver up, we're at lower elevation, right, going up from the surface from 5,000 feet. There, you know, Lake Como or wherever you were at a colony lake or wherever was probably, you know, you're 11,000. And so it's starting at 11,000. So you have vertical motion there too, just like all thunderstorms. So you're already in a colder part of the atmosphere, you know, what I mean? really quickly, right? So you're getting rising air and it's taking these rain droplets or whatever into a colder part of the atmosphere. They're turning into ice, into, into hail, you know, they get lifted back up, and there's more hail. But the fact that the atmosphere is elevated, we call it the boundary layer is elevated in the mountains, right? The boundary layer is that layer of our weather, of the atmosphere. And so it's elevated. And so Colorado is a known spot for hail, especially in the mountains, because it's colder aloft. you get vertical motion, the rain gets rhymed by ice, and it comes down. So you get a lot of hail. And the sand themselves, it may be a little unique in the sense that Look at the Sangre de Cristos. A lot of times during the summer, you have easterly flow, right? So there's a little bit of upslope. and so you get an upper-level disturbance that comes over. There's easterly flow. They're really jagged mountains. So the air gets forced more rapidly up above it. And so you'll get, you know, hail. But, yeah, a lot of times in the mountains, big thunderstorms are going to mostly always produce hail. And the last thing I'll say is even, you know, the Palmer Divide has one of the highest concentrations of hail in the U.S. as well. It's because it's elevated compared to Denver.
3: Wow. Well, I will say, being a gardener in Colorado, it breaks my heart because it's either the elk eating my flowers or it's the hail. So
0: <laughs> or the it's September it's frost, pretty
3: much impossible. Yeah. But that totally makes <laughs> sense that the sandgrasses would experience. That they're a so lot more.
0: they're so sharp. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Does that explain?
2: You guys need to put up a hail guard, an evergreen,
3: or just build a greenhouse. I guess I don't. Yeah.
2: Or yeah, like some partial shelter to shelter from the elk. I don't the... get any ideas. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, Seth.
2: I love the garden. A good, yeah, good Seth, DIY that's such project. a good idea.
3: Jason, that's that's
0: hey, you, you like got your new place project, place, buddy. Yeah.
3: <laughs> sounds like such a good idea. I'm so excited.
0: Seth, <laughs> so does that explain why Aeolus is always cloudy? Every time I'm in the Chicago Basin, Mount Aeolus is always, as, always has threatening clouds over it, and the rest of the Chicago Basin could be pretty good good weather. The same sharp, sharp, rising
2: phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, one thing is, is that like the Western San Juans and the San Juans get a lot of precip, and that's because those San Juans, especially the Western San Juans, you know, that's one of my very favorite mountain ranges. That is my favorite mountain area in Colorado. You know, the area where you, that you're described, you describe know, the Weminuche Wilderness and the area near Silverton and Telluride. Those are big, big mountains, right near Silverton, and so that's a big bulk of mountains. And if you look, if you go further to the southwest there's nothing obstructing the flow. So if the flow comes in from a certain direction, it just lifts the entire atmosphere. And you're right, those higher points, it's gonna lift it more, and so you get more cloud formation. It's kind of like how clouds hang out by the Matterhorn or these big spires of rock. But the San Juans get a lot of precip and clouds that include Silverton area. And then if you get flow out of the south, southwest, or even southeast Wolf Creek, as you know, further east gets a lot of precip. Um, you know, Silverton and Wolf Creek typically get the most snow in the state, but yeah, it's just, It's the location of the mountains relative to the flow and the fact that you have big peaks in a big mountain range.
1: So because it's a 14-er podcast and we technically met you on a 14-er, we have to ask a -er 14-er question. What's your favorite -er? (laughs) 14-er?
2: So yeah, let me speak a little bit to that. You know, I I, I haven't kept track. I've probably climbed maybe about 15 different 14-ers, but many of them, you know, several, several times, whether it's summer or winter. I'm not one that necessarily keeps track. I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of like a lot of backcountry skiers. Um, I love to get on top of the peaks, but it's more about the skiing for me or the snowboarding. And so it's, you know, I, I don't, it's like, I actually usually get on more peaks in May with skis. And on a side note, I'll just say that I have a hard time these days actually hiking a 14 or during the summer because I'm like, hiking I can't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just not, it's just not fun, it's just not fun, so. Um, <laughs> don't
3: blame it but, on the old knees
2: exactly and i do have like some bad hips and knees they're doable <laughs> but. um so yeah I, I love i so one thing is is that you know i grew up next to mount blanca so i looked at a 14er growing up i have climbed that thing three times um and so the mountains the 14ers have always been really special to me close to my heart recently actually you know it's kind of related to how we met um i hadn't really been on a 14er last year with the way that the snowpack set up and it was just good it was you know we got after it me and my buddy chuck and some other people so i got on top of several big peaks but the two big 14ers were quandary and democrat i think you know in back-to-back weeks or something like that and that was special i have to say i had previously been up on a quandary during the summer but to get up there and to ski the crystal clear with good conditions all the way down was fun democrat of course as you know jace jace i want to actually go back and ski the lines on the south side which looks sick too sure that we I didn't realize that. In the shoots, they were they were cruiser man yeah they were super fun yeah So the north face was pretty intense. I think when we met, remember, my buddy and I were trying to get in this line from the very top, and our two other buddies had actually skied it. But we got down there, and the entrance just looked so sketchy. It was like, I'm not – let's just go back down a little bit and ski the main north face. And so we ended up doing that. Um, So that was special. You know, um, 14ers are definitely special. It's what makes our state really unique. It's such a big draw. Like I said, I'm not as focused on my 14-er numbers per se. I like being on peaks, but I like skiing down peaks more than anything. So. That's okay. awesome.
1: What's been your favorite
2: 14-er ski descent then? I'll, I'll phrase
1: it that way since you're a ski guy.
2: Oh, yeah. So that was the original question. So, yeah, probably my, my very – I haven't skied a ton of 14-ers. I've actually skied, I think, three or four. Um, but my favorite one by far, it's still one of the best – ski mountaineering things i've had for myself has been skiing um uh, off the top of tories the emperor Yeah, uh, it's one of my
1: favorites that's so awesome in,
2: in, yeah june of 2011 and it was great conditions yeah from the top it's you know that rollover from the top there that 50 degree rollover is it's it's, it's puckering for yeah. sure yeah. <laughs>
1: i know that one all too well i took a tumble there it Was the oh
2: angry. yeah it's in one of our
1: earlier episodes yeah I, took a slide for life and had to self arrest and skied the rest of it, but it was bulletproof. And, uh, if I didn't have my ax, I probably wouldn't be here. So yeah. Oh dude. I know that section. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I booted out cause it is so steep and I've got a size 12 boot and on a snowboard, sometimes your, your boots, what makes contact before your edge and it just slipped out and I just, I went,
3: you know I, what a big boot means?
1: Yeah, no, no. <laughs> big ice axe big caterpillar
2: yeah right right big caterpillar I need a I need ones.
1: another shot on emperor because it was <laughs> such a great descent but I still need that top 70 feet to say I've skied the whole thing so I need to go back and get it in better conditions but it's such a gorgeous aesthetic long descent It's so so cool
2: yeah there's just so many good dis- descents I mean I don't know some of my favorite are like some 13ers but yeah, that was definitely the best fourteen years—the north face of Tories. It's—I saw several people. I didn't have a chance this year. The uh, tuning forks looked really good this year. Mm-hmm. I skied really well, like into June is good. And then even right near there, I want to ski um, the main D off of Grizzly. I've skied like I've skied the more mellow one—that's a little bit more down the ridge. But the main dog that comes off the the the, the, the I think it's the east face there is that looks incredible. So.
1: You and I may have to chat offline and compare our checklists
2: and maybe get out on one this spring. We should, man. We should ski. And, you know, like you guys, I have. I mean, I have an ever-evolving list. Yeah. But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's always – and that's a great thing about social media. And, I mean, people usually keep their secret stashes. That's fine. But you can gain a lot. And, you know, I've written down so many different zones and lines. And, and one thing I know you guys appreciate, and it's related to 14 years, is, and we're, we're so lucky in the state, is – Every year when I ski, I, ex- I try to explore a different drainage and a different zone. And every drainage, like, even this year for me, like, I got the whole connection between, like, Quandary, Democrat. The other side were, like, Drift, Fletcher, and then, and then, and then from there to the southwest towards, like, Arkansas. Like, I connect. You know, it's like, did Quandary, did Democrat. I had been on the Mayflower Gulf side. And then I did, we did a line near Arkansas. We didn't do Arkansas, but it was a line between Arkansas and Tweedo. Yeah. And it, to be able to like, Oh my God, like there's so many possibilities here. And it was like, we just did one line in each year. And it was like, it's just endless for yeah. so every year. I like to just like check out new drainages, figure it out. Where are the lines?
3: Well, that is very much the heart of the non-standard 14 podcast. Cause so many 14ers have so many different approaches and different yeah. ways to tackle them. And each one is unique and and fun in its own special way. So Anyways, we really, really appreciate you, you know, taking the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to be respectful of your time. We've been, we're a little over an hour. um, So we'll, we'll let you get going. But before we do that, I do want to ask you one more question. We kind of asked this to, to a lot of our guests. And I stole this question from one of my favorite podcasters, Tim Ferris. But if you had a billboard at the base of I-70, that was a, a one or two sentence message to project to everybody that's going up to the mountains. Is there a message that you would put out there? What would you put on
2: your billboard? I mean, this one's pretty cliche, but it just covers everything. And that's no before you go. It's huge. Yeah. But I'll also, put this, I'll also say this, and this is a motto I, I live by. And there, there's different variations of this, but it's really keen for backcountry skiing, mountain biking, any mountain adventure. Prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> the peas. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's different variations I've heard lots of variations but for me it's prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance I think about that every, I put that on the billboard and I, I think in Colorado I mean look uh, you know if, if you're prepared shit can still go wrong when you're prepared but if you're prepared you have a much better chance you go into the backcountry or even during the summer 14 year and you're not prepared both mentally physically or with gear you could get in a lot of trouble and so I think about that every time. I backpack a lot. I camp a lot. I, 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 I want it to be on point. I usually lead the boys when I'm going and I, I, I have to, I always prepare. It's like backcountry navigators, everything, you know, it's yeah. like you want to be prepared.
3: That's perfect. That's like Abraham Lincoln's luck favors the prepared.
1: Totally. Well, and that's actually, that's one of my favorite debriefing questions is, you know, and I learned it from Justin Ibarra, who you, you probably know from the group is, yeah, are, we're back at the truck now. Are we back here because we got lucky? or because we planned well and made good decisions. And that's, you know, some days the answers are different than others, but, you know, it's always good to err on the side of being prepared than just
3: absolutely winging
1: it and getting lucky.
2: It's always it's a little of both. Always, yeah, there's been times. I mean, I admittedly, like, I'm an absolute powder dude. I, I live for over-the-head face shots untracked. But, you know, that's where the avalanche problems arise is when you have two feet of blower. So, you know, I go ski some zones in the Vail Backcountry that I'm sure people know about. And um, it's, it's incredible, but it can be dangerous back there. And probably a few times where it's like you're pushing it a bit, but, you know, I don't know. You're right. I, I mean, try to be safe. I, I'm, every year I want to try to make, every year I remind myself, like, we've got to just reset and make better decisions. But I, I have this conversation with my family and my dad a lot. You know, my dad's always like, do not. You know, he's, he gets worried and I'm just like, I'm trying to be as safe as I can. This is a huge passion. I'm going to, you know, but I'm pretty, I'm real. I'm real with my wife too. Like there's, there's risk there, but life is too short not to risk. You know, you got to have, take some risk. I I guess the way I'll end it is, is I live my life a lot with what my dad said and he gets a little scared, but he's always said, and this could kind of go both ways, but if if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. (laughs)
1: I <laughs> love that. That's awesome. I think you have a poster that says that from the I college I do storm.
2: have a poster
3: from the yeah, college awesome. that says that. So, so true. Seth.
0: <laughs> <That> was, uh, <laughs> your energy and passion for weather and 14 years and powder and Colorado is just kind of inspiring. And I wish it was spring school course cool season already. I know. Already. It's awesome. I know. It's awesome. Me too. I really
2: appreciate it, guys. And it was just – it was a pleasure meeting you guys last year. I love making these connections. I mean, That's been the best thing about the weather report is I've met so many people. And then through the back country, I've skied with some of the most famous people in Colorado. Um, it's been great. I feel like you guys are up and coming sort of famous people too. You know, a lot of people, Jace, I know that um, just from following you on social media. So I think that's great. And um, it's a great community. So yeah, man, I'd love to get out with you guys and waiting on the snow. Um, certainly if anyone wants to get on Seth's weather report, you'll know. For sure, you know everyone always asks me to, you know, and I know Joel Gratz from Open Snow. I think that's great products too. You know, it's just different ways to forecast. There's a lot of different, you know, and um, Chris Tomer's really good too. But I really try to focus on, you know, I always try to focus on like, um, you know, timing and amounts as much like as accurate as I possibly can be. So you'll know before the next snow comes for sure. I told people that in the summer, and they knew six days before the snow hit, and when it that's hit, they were right. like way yeah, 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 yeah right. you were on.
1: It. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much, Seth. We'll, we'll uh, close out here. Guys, if you aren't already a member, join Seth's Facebook group. I think it is a private group. So you got a request. It's called Seth's Weather Report on Facebook. Awesome. Best forecasting in Colorado. Um, and uh, as always, make good decisions. You're responsible for your own decisions. Take everything we say with a grain of salt. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.